0: Servant leadership is when the leader says, I basically work for you, right? And the evolution of that is what now I call enlightened leadership. And enlightened leadership takes exactly what's happening in servant leadership. That all still applies, but it goes one step further. It now says, Lewis and Kyle, you know, I'm not here just to help you be be successful within the walls of the confines of this business. I want to do everything I can to help you be successful outside the walls of the business as well.
1: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of The Lewis and Kyle Show, where you get access to behind-the-scenes interviews with awesome entrepreneurs, investors, authors, and thought leaders in a variety of subjects, today's episode being no different. In this conversation, we have the pleasure of speaking with Rajiv Kapur about the big lessons from his new book I have over here is called Chase Greatness, subtitle, Enlightened Leadership for the Next Generation of Disruption. Obviously, this conversation discusses leadership, enlightened leadership specifically. What does that mean? How does it differ from service leadership? How does he implement uh, enlightened leadership into his culture at his own company, 1105 Media, a B2B marketing and events company? And we also discuss what he learned from working in senior management, senior leadership positions at Dell, working very closely with Michael Dell, the founder of Dell, etc. It's a fun conversation. I say that every time, but I mean it every time. Uh, So I'm going to switch to it now after a super quick word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by our friends at VASA, the virtual assistant staffing agency. We hired our first virtual assistants from VASA to assist with our operations running the show back in June. But VASA is not just for podcast editors. If you need some extra hands to free up your time, let VASA help you with hiring for administrative, technical, and creative work. That's graphic design, cold callers, social media managers, sales reps, video editors, admin assistants, and more. Free up your time to focus on your highest impact work and learn more about VASA at Vastaffing.agency or by clicking the link in the show notes to schedule a free strategy session with their team. Already back to the show.
2: Rajiv, welcome to the Lewis and Kyle Show. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Of course. Yeah, so I wanted to first sort of establish your credibility as somebody who can talk about leadership. You know, you've been the CEO of multiple companies, but you started your career in a really unique spot. Uh, working for Dell in the early 2000s, when the company was, or maybe it was the 90s, blowing up and changing the world. And I think people don't really realize how big of a company Dell is today, and sort of the the leadership that Michael Dell had to have had to build such an organization uh, that's been resilient through through the years. So if you could talk just a little bit about Michael Dell as a leader and and your role in that company and in that that growth trajectory.
0: Yeah, thanks, Cal. I, I appreciate that question and. Thank you guys for having me, and I'm really proud of what you guys are trying to do here with this podcast and everything like that. I love I love your guys' leadership in terms of leading your generation. I think it's awesome. So congratulations on that. So to answer the question specifically, look, look, I'll, I'm going to be very honest. I'm a Michael Dell fanboy for obvious reasons. And to me, I, to me, he's up here, so he's on a pedestal for me, right? And so, you know, I, I joined Dell in 1993. Prior to that, I was at a a Dell competitor called Gateway, and there's no way you guys probably even remember Gateway, but they probably weren't even born. Uh, in fact, you guys weren't born. So, so uh, in in '93, and so pretty much right away, like about, after about six, seven months being there, I got to work directly for him. You know, and the thing that I, that I loved about him, and the thing that I always cherished about my time working for him. Is that he always figured out how, how, he always figured out how to figure, bring out the best in people, right? He always focused on building a strong culture. He always focused on building and, and empowering his team to do what's right, and and he had, and he had no, no problem in telling you you know you did something wrong or if you needed to adjust or change. And so he was the epitome of of what in the nineties you know, we were taught was servant leadership, and you know which is hey I work for you employees and, you know, and, and we did well, right. And Dell was growing in, 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 his leadership and his strategy and his vision of, of what to do and how to do it was, what was amazing. And so, you know, for me, you know, what he did then, and then, we you know, what he's doing, what, what he did then recently with taking the company private, you know, retailing the company. I mean, think about it. He took the company private and it was like a multi, multi-billion dollar business. Who does that, right? Now, not, not many people to do that. He, he took the company private and it was like that. And so it was a uh, Quite interesting. And so, you know, they remember one time talking to some of my former friends at Dell. They're like, yeah, Michael calls us the world's biggest startup. Right? So here you have this $50 billion company and they call themselves the startup, right? I think, Louis, you were telling me earlier before we got on the call that you're basically with the startup, right? Imagine being, you know, imagine having this attitude that you're this $50 billion behemoth company. You can do whatever you want and you're, you're probably one of the top 20 richest guys in the world and you can do whatever you want. And yet he does this thing and he says, you know what, we're going to go back to our roots and act like a startup. And then they did that. They retooled the entire business and, and they're crushing it, right? You know, they're, they're number one in the world in everything that they do. And they're fantastic. So to me, it's amazing. It's a great story.
1: I mean, know that history of taking them private. That's got to be not, I don't know what the stats are, but that's, I feel like maybe know of SpaceX is like the only other example. And I don't even know if I'm right about that. Large? Well, SpaceX, yeah,
0: so, yes, yeah, yeah, SpaceX is never public. Okay, so, uh, what it would be like is if Elon Musk said, "Took that private or something." Yeah, for like, or like Twitter, right? He's buying Twitter. So imagine if he owned. So, so he wants to buy Twitter, and he's gonna, you know, he's gonna imagine he takes it. He, I'm gonna take it private and then not leave it public, right? So you take it private, you retools Twitter, for example, and then he turns off and want, and he goes public again. Well, that's kind of an example of what it would be like. SpaceX has never gone public.
1: So was that decision by uh, Mr. Dell motivated by, I guess if you want to call it like an air quotes, like, like a good business decision, or is that because like the culture was not enough within his control as a as a public company? Like what motivated that?
0: So here's the thing. When you're in a public company, there's a lot of benefits. Obviously stock price, stock goes up. But you, if you're in a public company and the stock is going up, there's never a problem with the company because everybody feels like they're making money you're looking at your stock options and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to go buy that house. I'm going to go buy that car. I'm going to do whatever, right? Oh my God, my future is set, whatever whatever the case case might be. And so for Michael, what happened was when the company went, the reason why the company went private was because, you know, they needed to retool their business model, right? Their business model kind of got stale a little bit. Now they still sell direct to, they still sell direct to businesses and consumers, but they needed to focus more on the cloud. They needed to focus more on, on the cutting edge of where, the larger computing and cloud world is going to. And so they needed to do those things. And it was hard to do that when every 13 weeks you have to report to Wall Street. And if you miss your number once, Wall Street punishes the stock and you feel like you're in trouble and shareholders get mad and police get mad. So he's like, look, I can't retool this company if every 13 weeks. My team, the saying at a public company is that every quarter is equal to one year. Right, so every, so every four quarters of a public company is like being at a company for four years. And so that's what made it difficult. And when, you, when you feel like you have to report to Wall Street every 13 weeks, it's difficult to make big, massive, big changes. And that's what Michael feel like he needed to do. And so he did it. He took the company private. There was a brutal shareholder fight when it happened. And he did it, he took it private, and then he, then he retold the company. I can't remember how many years they were private,
1: four or five years, and then they went public again, and, and it was a success. You mentioned his model was kind of that late 90s uh, era kind of servant leadership. I don't know if you take credit for your own kind of new model of enlightened leadership in terms of the the naming, but do you mind sharing what that overall theory is of kind of this new age version of leadership and the main differences between the old model?
0: Yeah, no, I mean, a, a, a great question. So I didn't necessarily coin the phrase enlightened leadership. I kind of, someone I think back in the 90s kind of talked about this idea of enlightened leadership. You know, originally, like in my brain, when I was writing the book and I was thinking about it, it's, it's almost like a wake, kind of like being awakened. But then I'm like, oh, if I do that, then people are going to call it woke and blah, 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 and all that. So I'm like, all right, I'm not going to do that. And the enlightened thing really hit me because are you, you guys, are, I'm sure you probably studied this idea of the age of enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. So an age of enlightenment happens when there's a change in industry, a change in communication, a change in infrastructure, which leads to different. Types of industrial revolutions we saw that happen, you know, after World War II. You saw it happen with the dot com boom. You saw, it you know, you know, the last, God, how many years here? You know, you, you so you've seen it a few times. And so, so I, the idea of enlightened leadership is an evolution of servant leadership, right? In the nineties, in the early two thousands, you know, my generation, the generation, you know, that the, the Gen X generation, the Gen Y generation was taught to say, look. And I'm the CEO of my third company, right? If if when you are when you're in a leadership position, whether you're the director of sales, where you, you're DP of marketing, the chief operating officer, the CEO, chief financial officer, whatever you are, the idea that you want to portray to your employees is that you want to do everything you can to make them successful within the walls of the business, right? In order to do that, the question is, oh, Kyle, what tool do you need to be successful? Oh, I need a better laptop, or I need access to this tool, or I need more money for marketing to figure out our addressable market and our share of wallet. I need access to, I need to hire more salespeople. Uh, You know, Lewis, you might say, gee, hey, I'm the chief revenue officer. I need more salespeople. So these are the tools I need to be successful. And the CEO's job is to say, okay, you can have these tools to be successful. We're going to have KPIs, you know, key performance indicators. We're going to hold each other accountable, but I'm going to do everything I can to help you be successful within the walls of the business. That's servant leadership. Servant leadership is when the leader says, I basically work for you, right? And the evolution of that is what now I call enlightened leadership. And enlightened leadership takes exactly what's happening in servant leadership. That all still applies, but it goes one step further. It now says, Lewis and Kyle, you know, I'm not here just to help you be be successful within the walls of the confines of this business. I want to do everything I can to help you be successful outside the walls of the business as well. Because you guys are dealing with a lot of stuff outside the walls of the business. That could, that could potentially harm your ability to be successful within the company, right? So, for example, COVID, right? Tough economic climates, um, social justice challenges, climate change issues, diversity and inclusion challenges. There's all of these things that are out there that, that are taking up a, you know, space in everybody's brain that could effectively cause challenges to say, hey, I really want to be someplace where I feel like I'm making a difference. Right. And light leadership says, I'm gonna do everything I can to help you make a difference. So example, in my company, and look, I'm fifty-five. In my company, what I did three years ago, and and we're coming up now, the next election, the midterm election is coming up like November eighth, right? In like three weeks. So at my company, we I get every one of my employees a paid day off to go vote. And I think I'm I, I think I'm one of very few companies that do that. I think Salesforce.com and a couple of others might. But in terms of companies out there, we I actually give all my employees a payday day off to go vote on that day because I want them to feel like they're part of the process. If they're not, if they don't like what's happening out there in the world, go out there and try to make a difference. So we do that. So we give them that pay day off to go vote. So we shut the company down. They don't have to use PPTO. Just go. They don't want to submit a vacation request. No. And if somebody says, well, gee, what if I vote by mail? Vote by mail. Go ahead. If you're going to do that, then take that day as a mental wellness day or take that time to get involved in your local community. Go do a beach cleanup. Go, you know, go be a poll worker, whatever you want to do, but just find a way to get involved, right? That's just a small way of me doing it. Now, we also support the last couple of years when we were supporting, we, we took a small percentage of our profits and we supported Operation Smile. And my employees feel good about that because they feel like that whatever they're doing, how they're generating business, you know, and look, we're we're a fairly profitable business. And to 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 take a very small percentage of money and donate it to an Operation Smile, which helps people to clap out. I'm sure you've seen pictures of these kids and people have that issue, right? Most people in Africa, India, places like that are ostracized from their community. So, So we were able to help, I think at last count, roughly 50 people have that surgery. And this year, we're actually supporting a, an amazing um, domestic violence abuse center called Rainbow Services. And so, you know, where we're giving money to them to help them build shelters for, for people who have suffered from domestic violence. So it's just small things like that. And so those things don't cost a lot of money. They're like a rounding error to your P&L, and to your, you know, so it doesn't matter at the end of the day. And if it makes my employees feel good, they're going to stay at the company longer, right? And that's ultimately the goal. Right. As a CEO, people say, Oh, well, you know, you know it's, it's, it's your profit. I go, Well, listen, the, one of my biggest challenges in profit is when I lose my employees. Turnover is high. Like before COVID, turnover was costing US companies like $32 billion a year. Now it's like almost five times that because of the great resignation and people want to work from home and companies don't want that. And, you know, the up, you know, and in the next three years, it could be even worse than that because the majority of the workforce is gonna be Gen Z millennial for the first time. Women are gonna be the majority of the workforce. So the, so the essential concept of enlightened leadership and I hope more and more people embrace this is servant leadership evolved to say, look, not only are you gonna, not only gonna do what I can to help you be successful at the company, I wanna try to do everything I can to help you be successful at life. And that's essentially the idea of enlightened leadership.
2: Yeah, and I think it, um, you know, you could, perceive it on the front end as not being a capitalist idea, but the people that you're talking about, Gen Z, millennials, and and I don't wanna say women broadly, but like this group of people that are coming up, are, are the the way that your company is going to be profitable is by serving this need of both profit and purpose. And so it's, it is a capitalist idea fundamentally to to create like value in your business. Right. 100%. Anybody who tells you it's not a capitalist idea
0: is bullshit because look, and I'm a capitalist, CEO of my third company, right? I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm one of the biggest capitalists out there. In fact, McKenzie, who's probably, you know, the largest consulting banking firm out on the planet has said, if you focus on your people, if you focus on purpose and you focus on improving the lives of your employees, you can see a seven to 8% improvement of your bottom line because they're not leaving because you don't have a high attrition and turnover. That by the way, is probably one of the best capitalist things you could do in your business is increase your bottom line. Right. And so if I, so for example, if if you have a $10 million profit business and it's going to cost you 50 grand to donate some money to a shelter or to whatever, and your employees are going to feel good. It's a rounding error. It's nothing, but your people feel good about it. You know what they do now that they didn't have in the 90s and the early 2000s? People talk about that. They put it on LinkedIn. Oh, my company did this. They talk about it on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, or, or well, I know you guys don't use Facebook, but, uh, but on Twitter, whatever the case might be, right? But and they talk about those things. And so that's essentially it. So that's, you're 100% right, Kyle. It is, in fact, capitalistic because you're retaining your employees. And the longer you can retain your employees, the less expense you're going to have in terms of training a new employee. If you lose a salesperson, a strong salesperson, guess what? You got to hire like three salespeople to replace the
2: productivity of one
0: senior salespeople, right? That's a lot of money.
2: That's the only thing one person not leaving to pay for that uh, charity or whatever you give, if it's 50000 or 100000 like it, you can make it make sense from a numbers yeah. perspective.
0: Right. And so look, I, I, look my, my, my company, we, we don't pay the most money for our employees. We don't pay the least money for our employees either. But man, we do everything we can to focus. I try to build a great culture at 1105 and we focus and we, and we try and we try. And look, in the last coming on a year in terms of voluntary attrition, we've only lost like two employees, which I think is pretty good.
1: I think it's definitely good. I think, you know, it's, 1105 is a V 2 B2B marketing firm. And I think what you're describing is really just, it's a, uh, it's a marketing problem or it's a, it's a packaging problem because if you... I think everyone has their own loaded definitions when you say things like social justice and they're like, they don't want to be, you know, forced to donate to causes that they don't align with. But it's pretty easy to find pretty neutral, feel-good causes.
0: Yeah, and Lewis, you're right. And I went through that same challenge. So, so the, this whole idea of voting came post-George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. And the Black Lives Matter's movement. Look, I'm no dummy. Like the stats tell me that no matter what I do, 40 to 45% of my employee base probably is not going to be a supporter of whatever stance I take. No, look, anybody here can go look at, you know, I'm I'm a little bit left of center. I'm I'm fiscal, you know, I'm one of those kind of, you know, for me, I'm a more of a purple guy. I'm fiscally mm-hmm. conservative. I'm socially liberal. And to me, I realized that no matter no matter what I did, I was going to make people upset. If I do nothing, people are going to be upset. If I do something, people are going to be upset. So if you do, you're damned, if you don't, you're damned. So that's when I came up with the idea of, you know what I'm going to do? If you're not happy with the past president, if you're not happy with what happened, if you're not happy with what's happening in your local community, then you have a right to vote. So go out, vote. So if I said, hey, I'm going to give you guys a day off to go vote, guess what? That helps everybody. Whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, doesn't matter who you are, Green Party, you can be the alien party, does not care who you are, you now have a right to go exercise because I'm going to give you that ability to go do it. So that's my way of giving back to you to say, look, Look, I know no matter what I do, if I take a stance one way or another, and you know, publicly, people can see where I stand on certain things. But in terms of the company, it's like, look, I'm going to give you the day after to go vote. And that takes care of the needs for everybody.
1: What are your thoughts on the Basecamp model of kind of like complete or maximal depoliticization? So many difficult words there of like internal culture. Just like, I think for certain types of companies, it's their better fits or worse fits. Like if it's truly like super objective STEM-based work and it's not about how much for you have with your employees, I I, I don't know, just if you're familiar with the model of like the companies that are like, let's just take no opinion. This is just a place where we contribute to projects and don't discuss the outside world. How do you feel about the companies trying to go in that direction? I think Coinbase also at some point made an attempt. It's, it's,
0: it's, It's a difficult question to answer. Right and it's difficult because you ultimately have a responsibility to shareholders, right, and so look, you know one of our companies we have a salesperson, and she is extremely political, extremely political, right, in her public views, but at the company man, she is the best salesperson on, right, and she's great and she's sweet and she's kind, but she just has this belief of certain things and and she works her ass off and she's amazing and she's good and their customers love her. So a dummy, you know, I mean, I want her to, I want support to be successful. I don't have to support her views, you know, publicly. And, you know, and we, look, the only thing I tell my employees is look, it's hard to have these conversations. It's hard not to have these conversations. If you choose to have these conversations, number one is I'm not going to be your referee. And number two be respectful, and so this idea of respect and gratitude is something we pound into every one of our employees, right? Like I, I like so. For example, then that salesperson I was talking about. I have the conversations with her. We go out to con- see customers together. We have lunches together, and I tell her, "Look, I completely respect your views. I'm grateful for. I'm grateful that you feel like you can talk to me about these things. I'm grateful for what you're, what you're doing for the company. I can respectfully disagree with you." We're gonna shake hands, we're gonna be friends, and we're just gonna move on, right? And I could do that with probably 99% of the people on the planet, you know? So don't know if I'd probably do it with Kanye right now, but I can do it with 99% of the people on the planet.
2: Lewis and I were just talking about the Kanye situation before the podcast started. Um, but I wanna ask, it's related, I guess, but a, a different question. Uh, how do you think about fighting the principal agent problem? Like, how do you incentivize people to act as an owner when they are not? And how do you get people to buy in and to act as if they have ownership? I just asked that question twice, but uh, I think- Well, look, I mean, so here's the thing, right? In public
0: companies, chances are you have some sort of stock option plan. You, You have some, like, you know, ESPP, ESOP program, you have, you know, like you might have your 401k might be matched in equity and stock, for example. So I mean, you have, so public companies are a little bit easier, private companies, it's a little bit harder, right? But where you, but where, but where you do that is, is it comes in, in, the, in the success of knowing that they're making a difference. So look, I'm a, B marketing, I'm a B2B marketing and media company, right? But you know what our tagline is? Our tagline is your growth is our business. And the thing that my employees get, you know, satisfaction in is that if they do their job, they're helping their customers grow. And if their customers are growing, they're being successful. They could ha- they could add, add more employees, whatever you know, whatever it might be, right? But here's the thing: it, it all comes back down to creating a culture. And this, you know, look, the title of the book is called "Chase Greatness," right? And the reason why it's called "Chase Greatness" is because of that word "great," and and that. And that word, oh, can you hold it back up real quick, Louis? So, 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 okay. So, so the word great. So that word great is actually an acronym and it's in the book. It's in, like in the last chapter of the book. Yeah. And, and so w- when COVID hit, I I, I wrote that book. I, I wrote the word great horizontally on my whiteboard. And I kept staring at it. I kept asking myself, gee, what does it mean to be great? And a few days later I walked up and I erased the whiteboard and I wrote it vertically and I wrote next to the, word, G. I wrote the word gratitude, then I wrote the word resilience, and then I wrote the word empathy and then accountability and trust. And a few days later, I walked up and I erased the word trust and I put the word transparency because you can't have trust in a business unless you're fully transparent with what's happening to your employees. And during COVID, I need to be really, really, really transparent with my employees because we got hit really hard. We lost half our business overnight because half our business was events. We did face-to-face events. Right? So you couldn't go to our event, just like you couldn't go to a baseball game. Or you could go to whatever like a movie theater or whatever, right? And so we lost all that business overnight. So we literally were, we were X size and 24 hours later we were <laughs> Y size, right? And so I needed to give my, my employees and the team everything to think about, right? And so what I wanted to make sure they understood is, is that, you know, even though that they don't own a percentage of this business, Right. What we're going to do is we're going to create a very safe culture for them to know that they're they're very appreciated through gratitude. That we're going to do everything we can in this company to be resilient, and we had to make some hard choices. We laid off people, we furloughed people, we, gave, we did pay cuts. But within like six months, all the pay cuts came back. We were able to hire back a lot of people, so we were very resilient. And they knew that no matter what happened, I was going to have their back, and that means something, right? Uh, we we're going to be empathy. Like I'll give you an example, right? So I grew up in a time when, and you guys may have heard this, is when if you're going to go talk to the boss, you better come with three solutions or don't come talk to the boss. Well, guess what? There was no freaking solution for COVID. No one had ever done it before. There's no case study from Harvard I could go read. There's no Princeton or Wharton case study I could go read. You know who wrote the case study? Us. You guys. Me. My team. We wrote the case study that they're going to be studying 20 years from now at Harvard, at USC at Alabama or where, you know, wherever it might be, in Tennessee, you know, they're going to be, re- they're going to be reading about, gee, how did those companies survive? But here's the thing, right? It's, it's it, it, so that was, that was really important having that empathy and listening to them and saying, look, we've never been through this before. All ideas are on the table, come and talk to me no matter what, 24 seven. And then holding everybody accountable, including myself. I held myself accountable to them. I held them um, accountable to me and then very transparent and open and honest with our communication. This is what happened. This is where we are. This is what's going on. These are the things we're doing to make it better. And if the more transparent, the better, the better your overall culture is gonna be. So that idea of great gratitude, resilience, empathy, accountability, and transparency was the title of the book Chase Greatness. And that's how we got there.
2: And I think all those things are a habit too. And maybe culture is a habit. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta do it every day. Like, so I, like, so for example, Monday's are my one-on-one days,
0: you know, and I try to really focus on, you know, where I, for all my leadership team, we do our ones, we focus a lot on gratitude, we do a lot of small things, we do a lot of surprises, we we do like a lot of like, like appreciation type things for employees, we do recognition events on a quarterly basis, Uh, we have our next one coming up in two weeks, where we recognize our top performers for the quarter for the previous quarter. Our top salespeople, our top managers, our top employees, you know, we, we do, we do shout outs, we, we do peer-to-peer recognition, which we call the high five awards. So we do a lot of recognition. So that's, you're right, Kyle, it's a, it's a habit. You got to practice every day. You don't have to do all five of them every day. Just try to do, at least, if you can do one of them every day, two of them every day. Great. You know, that's it.
1: At what point were you in your career when you kind of stopped being a senior leader within? existing structures and kind of uh, went off on your own. And did you kind of just at first just kind of copy and paste what you were doing there? Or did you like kind of say, okay, this is my opportunity to start from scratch. Like I'm in charge now. This is how I want, you know, blank slate, the culture of a company to be. Or did you kind of just start with, oh, this is how we did things at Dell. And I thought that was good. So I'm just gonna start with that and change it over time.
0: Look, I mean, look, foundationally Dell is a lot, a lot of what I do is foundation, foundationally in place because of my time at Dell, right? And, you know, I talk about in the book is one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career was I, you know, Dell had a very strong culture in the U.S., in Austin, right? And I remember the day that Michael called and said, hey, Richie, we want you to go to China in 2000. And so we moved to China and I remember going to China. and I talk about the story in the book and I got there and all excited. I'm the guy from the U.S. and pounding my chest. And this was like mid 2000 boy, I'm, gonna, I'm here to transform you guys and you guys, I'm going to take care of you. You, know, you guys are going to fall in line, blah, 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 right? And that was a big effing mistake. And so what you find out really fast is that no one person can, you know, can transform an entire country for, from, from, you know, from, a, from a business perspective or from a company culture perspective. You know, I had to figure out how to adapt myself and my style to fit China. Right, while still bringing in some of the best of what I learned from Dell, it took about six months to figure that out. But finally, we did, and we ended up doing pretty well. And I get more details in the book in terms of what we did. And how we did it, but foundationally, you know, Dell's a lot of a lot of what what I what I build on, and the lessons from Michael. But look, I mean, look, we've got recognized. You know, my teams have been recognized kind of twice for the best pledge to work, you know, awards, you know. I've been lucky to have a team that's been very innovative. We've been recognized as a very innovative company. One of the companies I have a startup in the, in the audio technology space. And we were recognized at CES, you know, the consumer electronics show three years in a row for best in class, best in show for technologies. So, so those things are, are things where that, you know, are really important and, you know, that they go a long way to bring pride to an organization. And I think that, that, that that's pretty cool. And so. The, you know, and that you know, having that pride in your organization is—you f- you feel proud about working at that company.
1: I think the more relatable question, or not, but that I think that's very aspirational for a lot of people. Is to like be in that position of leadership and in, in all those awards. But for kind of the average listener of this podcast, who's you know very early career, like our age, et cetera, what are your? Maybe you enter a team that. I guess two questions. One would be like, what kind of responsibility should be on the early level employee to kind of like if they feel like the culture is not a great fit, is that something they should work on and and how should they do that? Or should they just try to find a place with a better culture right away And because they're just going to grow faster in the right bar? Like, what is your general kind of advice for someone to be mindful of culture when they're just at the bottom of the totem pole?
0: Well, first of all, I think nowadays the information is so readily available in so many companies, thanks to... That's a good point. You (laughs) You can can go on
1: Glassdoor and be like,
0: you you can go on Glassdoor, you can go social media, all these things, right? You know, but you know, Look, a, a lot of smaller companies, like my, my company relative is relatively small. Like, you know, I think our Glassdoor rating is like 3.2, 3.3, whatever, right? The CEO rating is like 90%, which is nice. Uh, but look, there's just so much publicly available information. Now, right? You can go follow the company on LinkedIn and you can go, you know, you can see what employees are saying. You can, uh, but most importantly here is that since you have all this information, asking upfront in the interview process, asking them you know, when they ask you, do you have any questions for me? Yeah, don't be silent. Talk to me about your culture. You know, how do you guys help them? How do you help employees grow within the company? What is your career path opportunities? You know, where do you guys stand on purpose and passion or whatever, or whatever questions you want to ask, right? But my point is that you got to ask the questions, right? So if you go blindly into a company and you don't like the culture, it's a little bit on you because it, the information's there now for you to go find it. You know, you should know before you walk in the door, right? What that culture is like, you know? and so. So there's that piece. But if you, let, let, let's just hypothetically say you missed it and you go into that company, then it's a matter of, look, do you, at the end of the day, it's about, do you like, do you, if you're a data analyst and you're at XYZ company and you really want to be a data analyst and you feel like, hey, can I stick it out for a couple of years? Yeah, by the way, stick out a couple of years? See if you can't affect change while you're within that business. See if you can't go figure out how to go work with your boss and ask him or, or, or ask them, say, look, what can we do to be successful? How, what can I do? But let me tell you the biggest advice I'll give because people ask me this all the time. The biggest piece of advice I'll give young people like you guys is always raise your hand for the hardest job. Do not take the easy path because if you can be successful when it's the hardest job, you will be golden in that company. So I'll give you an example. When Michael Dell called me in 2000 to say, Rajiv, we want you to move to China. I was really pissed because I was managing the West Coast for Dell. And we were, we were crushing, we we're like a billion dollar plus business, and We were crushing it. I thought I was going to get this big promotion and all these other things were happening. And I remember talking to my boss about it. And it was great. And Michael knows me, right? From, from the early, from a few years earlier, right? working for him and everything. And, and he tells me, gee, I want you to go to China. And I was pissed. I'm like, I don't understand. Why do you move to China? What did I do wrong? We're doing all these things, blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me and he basically, well, he didn't let me do this on the phone. He he just said, "Rajiv, are you done talking? I said, yeah. By the way, he he dropped the F-bomb in there as well. And he goes, listen, one of the things I learned from my mentors is that you take your best people and you don't put them on the easy stuff. You take your best people and you stick them on the stuff that's hardest, that needs to be fixed in the company and that's hardest to get done in the company because they're going to go figure out how to do it. If you can fix that, you can fix anything and you're going to be a hero. So raise your hand for the hard jobs, raise your hand for the toughest assignments. When, when somebody says, hey, Kyle, I want you to move to Brazil and I'm just picking on Brazil to go do this, understand and realize it's not because they're mad at you. It's because maybe they feel like that's a huge market opportunity for the company, right? If they say, hey, Lewis, and hey, Lewis, what, what are you studying? What did you study? I did computer science. Computers, comps, you're comps, right? So, if they said, Hey, we want you to go to India to set up an office, like, wait a minute, I don't go to India, out of sight, or my blah, blah, blah. No, you want to go to have that experience because if you can put on, you know, go out there networking, you know, what, you know, I'm just picking on whatever it might be, right? So, you go and you do that. You, you go put in your time, you go put in your dues for a couple of years, it might be, you're going to go by like that. It's going to go by really fast. And that's going to look amazing on a resume, right? Because if you think about your resumes, can you imagine? Lewis, if you had on your resume, Psi, you went to India, you did this, 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 or whatever, Romania, wherever it might be, you set up this operation, you did this, you hired 50 people, design, you know, data scientists to do this, comp engineers, you know, blah, 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 blah. You know, versus coming back in and you, and your resume. And if you didn't do it, your resume would just say, you know, CompSci programmer, two years at XYZ company. Which resume is going to be more exciting? Which resume is going to get the better attention from the recruiter, from the hiring manager at the new company? Be that one, right, if you want to go get your MBA at at whatever a top ten, top twenty school, whatever you do, what do you think is going to be better to that recruiter? Right, it's going to be those kinds of things. So raise your hands, go out there, raise your hands, and, and go prove to the world that you're the that you're the best.
1: Mike draws that, uh, and I do yeah. love myself some international travel. Yeah, and I want to
2: touch on your one in, in India.
1: To... So give me a call. Did that that Colby? Yeah.
2: My Exactly. Uh, think, uh, I know you're a big Lakers think, fan. Oh, a huge Laker fan. What I was going to say is I think that uh, <laughs> the willingness to ask a question and and asking questions is a form of leadership too. Like a lot of people will just be silent because they think that's what will make their superiors or whatever happy. But if you're not willing to ask the question. And, and I think that this is the downside the line of being willing to raise your hand for the hard job. It's just like, that is a form of leadership. You have to put yourself in a position to fail and to look stupid or you're not going to grow and you're never going to be the best at anything.
0: Yeah. Look, I mean, we, we could joke around about Kobe all we want or Michael Jordan. I missed 9,000 shots in my career. Right. But what you want to be able to do is you want to be that first person in, at work in the morning and the last one to leave. Right. You know, and I know people are doing a lot of remote work, so that's you know, it's 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 more about the, you know, that that's more of the schooling wow, right. idea. It's you know, it's so it's it's just a it's an example of the mentality you want to have, right? And so, you know, and then you know, what well, we talked about, you know, you want to raise your hand, and but most importantly, be curious, ask questions, and when you ask questions, ask open ended questions. Don't ask. You know, try not to ask that many yes or no questions. Sometimes you can ask yes or no questions, right? But ask
2: open-ended questions, right? And, and the, that's what's going to be key. Here's an open-ended question. How did raising your kids impact your perception of leadership? Well, that's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um,
0: look, I think I, I, I realized that I, I realized early on that I, I needed to be a really strong example for my boys, and uh, we talked earlier, I have two sons. One's a senior at USC, one's a sophomore at the University of Miami. And being, being a role model for them was really important, right? And so if I'm a role model for them in a positive way, then that means, I think, I think in my mind, I'm being a role, a positive role model for my employees at my company, right? And so that whole idea of servant leadership morphing to enlightened leadership, You know, if you read the book, if you read the opening of the book, the book is dedicated to the boys, to my sons, because I wanted to leave a legacy for them. And I want to leave a legacy for my employees. I want to leave a legacy for my customer base. I want to leave leave a legacy for my investors and shareholders. So I want to be able to, I want people to be able to look back on this in five, 10, whatever it is, 15 years to say, look, this was an amazing, positive experience. And we really learned. And look, the idea of leadership that most people forget there's two things. Your job as a leader is to create more leaders because when you go to a company, so let's hypothetically say tomorrow, I said, you know what? I'm done. I'm leaving this company. I'm gone. Guess what? The company's going to thrive. You know why? Because I've built the best management team around. So that to me is amazing leadership. And I'm not just giving myself a pat on the back. What I'm trying to say is that if you build a company where when you leave, the company falls apart, that's bad leadership. The fact that one person leaving could cause that to happen is a huge problem. Right. And I think so, so understanding, and realizing that, understanding and, and, and giving, giving my boys the ability to understand and realize that you have to have real strong. And one of the things we talk about a lot in, the, in, in our household is the idea of balance. Look, I, you, you can ask my sons. I've not asked them about a single grade that they've received on a report card in probably seven years. And, and I don't care. And, and by the way, I mean I do care, but but I don't because at the end of the day, it, it's about their mental wellness and about being able to understand and realize that what that if they can go out there and make a difference, you know, in their careers, it's going to come from their own internal fortitude, and that's what's key. And because look, I was an average student. When I went to a state school. I did my master's at USC, and look, I worked hard. I worked myself. Everything I've done here, I had to bootstrap myself up, and so. Hopefully that was a good example. Let's do a couple
1: bonus questions. And then, uh, yeah. So you mentioned before we got started, I don't know if this is, we can chop this out if we need to, but you said you sold a movie script recently. If that's something they're talking about in the open, uh, do you want sharing a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, you know, um, the official announcement for it will probably come in about a week and a half, I think. When when is this going to go
1: live? further than a week and a half from now.
0: All right. So the for, the final announcement on this will probably come in about a week and a half so, maybe two weeks. Yeah, no, look, d- during COVID, after I wrote the book, one of the things they tell you to do is after you write a book, they tell you to put it away for a few weeks and then come back to it. And in that, in that few week windows where I put it away, I had this idea for writing a movie script. So, and I needed something to do during COVID because, you know, you couldn't go out to, couldn't do much, right? So. I started writing the movie script and so first thing i did was i wrote a treatment and a movie treatment is essentially a book report on what you want your movie to be All right so like a 20 25 page treatment on oh it's going to be this and it's going to have kyle and it's have lewis and this and blah, blah 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 so it's basically a 20 25 page book report on book. that's called a treatment i didn't know any of this stuff until i i mean i just would just go to reddit youtube and so you know how do you write a movie script how do you write a treatment well for first you gotta write a treatment how do you write a treatment so that's literally what i did you know, and so I started asking people around and, and so I wrote this treatment and it was kind of cool. And I shared that with some people. And they said, oh, this is kind of a neat idea. And so then I downloaded some software called Final Draft, and, which is like the leading screenplay software thing out there. And I, tried to, and I didn't know how to use it. So I go watch videos of how to use it. And you know, I kind of started writing um, different things in there. And I find myself getting stuck. And then the editor for my book, I was talking to him one day and I said, Hey, do you know anybody who could help train me in how to write a screenplay? And he goes, why? And I said, well, I've done this treatment, blah, 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 and I'm stuck. And I'm going to do the screenplay. And he goes, oh, well, that's what I do. I do that also. And I go, really? I didn't know that. And so then he would train me and then we would go back and forth and he would help me and then it kind of became a little bit of a collaborative process working with him and we had a lot of fun doing that. And then uh, fast forward to February of this year, I got an agent and I'm also a member of this organization called YPO. I don't know if you guys ever heard of it. Young President, which I highly recommend anybody who's listening, go to ypo.org. That's yellowpeteroscar.org. If you ever want to be the leader of a company, that is the organization. Must, must, must join, period, hands down. It'll be the most, it'll be the best business and personal and family decision you'll ever make in your life. So that's my YPO commercial. Um, But, I was in YPO and I was talking to some people and I said, Hey, I've done this. I can use some help. And I got introduced to this lady and she was, Oh, you know, achieve. I used to be the president of Simon and Schuster, you know, the big book publishing company and I've got my own agency and, you know, I'd love to maybe look at your stuff. So I gave it to her she read write it. She goes, I like it. She goes, I'd like to be your agent. I go, oh, great. Oh, awesome. All right. And then, so she started shopping it for me. And then, uh, officially it was about six weeks ago, eight weeks ago where we officially kind of, went into negotiation and recently we concluded the negotiation and we sold the script. And what does that mean? At the end of the day, it really doesn't mean shit because it's out of my hands now and it's up to the production company to do something with it. Hollywood is littered with people who buy movie scripts that they don't don't do anything. And so, but Hey, to get this far and it was really exciting for me because I was born and raised in LA and you already know I'm a big Laker fan and literally I'm a big Hollywood fan. I love Hollywood. you know when I was a kid growing up people would ask what did you want to do when you grew up and I said I want to own
2: the Lakers and be a movie producer and so there you go. Why not both? um can you give us a genre? Is it uh is it a It's a superhero 200 years in the future type of a deal. Now that is the kind of movie that I like to watch so I will be I'll be on the lookout for sure. I wanted to ask you, I don't know how to really fit this into a question. But the golden rule is something that I, I find a lot of wisdom in, makes a ton of sense to me. How has the golden rule helped you throughout your career and in your everyday life? Um, Kyle, you're gonna have to go a little bit more detail with what is your
0: definition of the golden rule before I can answer that question.
2: Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, I mean, look, it's how do you wanna be treated, right? You treat people how you wanna be treated, right? That, that's
0: basically it, right? Look, I I had an old boss. I had had an old boss at Dell. And I talk about this in the book a little bit. And I'm not going to use his name. uh, But when I was in Asia, after the China stint, we moved to Singapore. And he decided for some reason he was going to use me as a punching bag. And guys, when I tell you he was a giant, brick a-hole, he was. And in his mind... He was doing it because I'm the I'm the I'm the American expat. He couldn't get mad at the locals. He's an American also, he was an expat. And he felt like I'm gonna go beat up Rajiv. And while beating him up, that's gonna get the others in law. And he made my life a living hell for a little bit. And then funny enough, one day, I got this call from this guy in Austin. And he said, Hey, you work for this guy. I go, yeah, because he, he needed some help with a customer in Asia. He asked me if I could help him. I said, you sure. know, we start chatting. He goes, oh, you work for a so-and-so. I said, yeah. He goes, oh, uh, he's a real pain in the, you know what? I go, he is. He goes, you know, we we'll we used to have a saying for him. What's that, he goes, you'd be bruised but better. And right then it hit me what his M.O. was. His M.O. was he wanted to beat the hell out of you to see what you were made of. So he was testing me, and I survived. And also has thrived. But what he didn't realize was that he could have gotten way more out of me without being such an a nail, right? Because I was already trying to do, I mean, I'm at, I was already doing pretty well, right? And so I remember we were going to our next one-on-one meeting and, and I walked in and I was re- getting ready to just lay into me for something. I said, stop right there. You know what you're doing to me? You know this story? I got a call from so-and-so. Do you, remember? Do you know so-and-so? He goes, yeah. He goes, you know what you told me about you? And he looked at me like, oh shit, what did he say? He goes, he said that you, you're practicing bruised, but better. And he sat there and he just smiled and he started laughing at me. And that thing right there broke, somewhat, something in him broke. And after that, he treated me like a son. And, and so it just comes back down to, you know, treat others like how, you know, to, you know, the golden rule, right? I mean, yeah, it's, you know, you, you put into life, you know, you get out of life what you put into life. And if you're going to put all this negative energy in there, if you're going to be an a-hole, if you're going to go on Twitter and be a racist and say all these things, then you deserve everything coming back to you. And by the way, it's not cancel culture. It's holding you accountable.
1: We uh, just briefly got well, not briefly got into the, the golden rule there, but there's like 100, I'm checking in the other tab here, 116 live counts, of poor rules. Uh, what is the motivation with that project? And That's also probably a good place to send people who are curious to get more bite-sized wisdom.
0: Yeah. So if you look at the book in the back of the book, there's 30 of them. There's like 32 of them in the back of the book. Yeah. And so look, it, you know, people say, oh, there's a lot of rules. And like, well, you know, rules are meant to be broken at some level. Right. But,
1: you know, that's what the them. first rule is, right? Yeah. You know, the so first rule is that the right thing to do will eventually become the wrong thing to do. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so I think right now there's, there's going to be, there's roughly 234 of them. I don't know if I'm going to go beyond that. Um, I think I might take a break from them and start doing other things. With, with that, with, with that platform, when I get there, I think my, my favorite one uh, of all time is, you know, is essentially this, which is, you know, if you want to be a great leader, you know, give people the tools to do their job, you know, and then you know, get out of their way and support them when needed, you know. That's probably one of my favorites. You know, I think another one is, you know, most people and companies fail not because they do the wrong thing. They failed they failed because they did the right thing for too long. Right. You guys, you know, to th- think about think about what's happening right now, like with Instagram and TikTok, right? You know, Instagram trying to be more like TikTok, right? Facebook is failing and they're trying to do meta because they because you know, but at one point Facebook was the the way to go, right? For but then there's but then they didn't pivot, they didn't change fast enough. Right? If you think about if you think about you know, companies, right? You guys ever heard of a company called Blockbuster? Distant Memories. Right. So, so things so, don't work out for them from what I heard. Right. But did you know the story that the Netflix executives went to Blockbuster and they said, Hey, we've got this idea. Why don't you buy us with your distribution channel? You can transform everything, blah, 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 blah. And Blockbuster laughed these guys out the door and said, We don't need you. We're going to do more stores. In fact, they tried to do the Netflix model. This is good that doesn't work. We're going to just do more stores. And now they're out of business. There's one store left. There's one store left in, one store left in um, I think, Portland, just for fun, I guess. Um, but yeah, and, and Netflix now dominates. And streaming now dominates, right? That's an example. Another example of that is T-Mobile, right? Funny enough, one of my old bosses at Dell, John Leisure, is the, was the CEO at T-Mobile. He came on board and what did he do? He essentially kind of took this thing and said, look, You've got this old, stodgy telecom industry of AT&T, Verizon, Sprint, T-Mobile. And what is it? You can't change your phone. It's all this nonsense, contracts. It's a pin in the ass, you know, all this other stuff. So what did he do? He said, no, we're going to do everything opposite. You want to change your phone every year? Change your phone every year. You want to travel internationally not have rooming charges? No problem. You want to have a simple bill? No problem. You, you want to get out of your phone with us? No problem. You know, so everything he literally turned the it turned the whole industry on its head, and uh, so you know, and, and, and T-Mobile then eventually you know merges with Sprint, and, and now you know the stock price went up twenty, oh, what is it? it? Tripled, I think, something like that, from the time he he's not there anymore. But you know, it does well, so it's just things like that. So it's those kinds of things that you want to be able to look at, and so that that that's this idea of eventually the right thing to do will be the wrong thing to do. We talked about earlier, so you, know, you got to keep pivoting
1: Rajiv. You clearly have, you know, we've barely gotten to small percentage of the stories you tell in the book in terms of additional value and anecdotes you share on social media, where uh, can people find the book or again, the title again, if people are just going to default Amazon and also the more personal connections to you. And then let me unmute you real quick. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: of course, Amazon is a great place to find it. Chase greatness. Rajiv Kapoor, K-A-P-U-R. K-A-P-U-R uh you know it's on you know you can go to you can find it on it's all uh, here your, your screens blurry there Kyle but yeah you can uh, um look like it's you can find it on goodreads you can find you know some of the local bookstores are getting it out which is really exciting it's available on kindle and then hopefully by the end of november it'll be available on an audiobook format as well so it'll be available on spotify and other places as well so there's that in terms of my social media look if people want to connect with me on linkedin please connect with me on linkedin Rajiv Kapoor. It's the, the name right there, the title of the book. Uh, Instagram, it's at the Rajiv Kapoor, just because, you know, in India, Rajiv Kapoor is like Will Smith. So it's, it's, or, or, or John Smith, whatever. I think Will, Will Smith is probably bad, but I think John, John Smith more than that. So, and then on, you know, Twitter, it's at Rajiv Kapoor. So, I'm pretty easy to find. It's, it's you know I don't really hide myself, so people want to connect with me. And if there's things
1: I can help people's companies or help the just reach out to me. That's going to close out this conversation with Rajiv Kapur. I got his book right here. We showed it on air a couple times because it was in her hands. Chase greatness, Enlightened leadership for the next generation of disruption. My ability to memorize titles not being at its all-time greatest strength. Three takeaways for me, and then I'll send you all to the next thing. Maybe that's the next episode. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's a workout. Who knows what the next thing is for you? I don't, because this is an asynchronous medium. That's how podcasting works. Okay, takeaway number one is I liked how he frames, uh, we didn't call it corporate social responsibility in the podcast, but that's kind of like the corporations doing good uh, for the community, et cetera, called CSR. He framed that through ROI, and that made me a bigger fan of the concept by I mean, it, like it's a nuanced subject because I think a lot of people hear corporate social responsibility and interpret that to mean your company is taking a political stance and they're using some of the profits to support that cause that you may or may not agree with. Whereas he kind of talks about very neutral causes like helping people who were born with facial structure that could use repair. Like that's pretty good. That's a, that's a pretty good cause. I, I wouldn't mind if the company I work for gave to that. versus if they gave to some very clearly politically motivated organization you know, 45% of the company is going to be alienated by that. Uh, So one, I liked picking more neutral causes. And then the other one was just framing it as like, if you keep, if you're, you know, a thousand person organization, it only costs you a few hundred thousand dollars a year and it greatly reduces turnover and makes other people more likely to want to work at your company. That's another situation where, again, like it actually is helping the bottom line by doing those things. But it also, it it does good. So that that was a good reframe for me, uh, the way he discussed that. Second takeaway, pretty straightforward. I liked the discussion at the end about taking the hardest job offered to you. That was a great piece of advice. Kind of just what's the hardest option on the table that still kind of meets your needs and checks your boxes. And that'll uh, be rewarding later on in your career, if not kind of immediately, even though it's hard. And then third, it was about values and habits. So a lot of executives kind of can talk the talk about their values at their company and their, you know, people like to use acronyms and have a letter, a word with the letters that mean things, right? That's That's the definition of acronyms. Uh, For those who didn't know, anyway, Rajiv, we really, he just kind of had a great answer when I was like, how do you implement those things? And he just was like, well, on Mondays, I do this one. On Tuesdays, I do this one. And on Wednesdays, I do this one. I feel like not very often do you hear an executive or a person in senior leadership immediately excite the examples of what they do every single week to represent their values. So I thought that was a good like clap back. I wasn't challenging him with the question. I wasn't like, oh yeah, are you actually great? Like that wasn't the intention at all. But I was like, just curious. And then he's like, well, Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, boom. Uh, So if you're ever one of those people spewing an acronym, uh, and if you have an answer like that, people are gonna be like, damn, I believe you now more so than I did. Uh, That's all I have to say for this conversation with Rajiv. Definitely check out the book on Amazon. Follow him on Instagram if you are an Instagram user. And yeah, that's, that's this podcast. It's the Lewis and Kyle Show. I hope you're subscribed. If you liked this episode, it's pretty easy to subscribe. I'd encourage you to do so. Say hey on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever. Email, you can figure all that out in the show notes, on YouTube, using the Google. And yeah, we'll be here in a couple weeks with the next episode. Subscribe so you're the first to know about it and see you there. Cheers, bye.